Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. My name is Adam White. I'm co-director of the Antonin Scalia Law School's Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. And it's a real pleasure to welcome you today for the first of a first day of a two-day webinar series we're hosting on equity in the administrative state uh, in, in conjunction with the Georgetown Journal of Law and Public Policy. I need to say in the last few years, there has been a flourishing debate over uh, equity, social justice, and the rule of law in modern administration, both from the Supreme Court's recent decisions in the Harvard and University of North Carolina cases, and also in light of President Biden's executive orders on, um, on racial justice, including his day one executive order titled Executive Order on in advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities through the federal government. And then, of course, everything that's carried on through the agencies. It's a great time to stop and take stock of these developments and the broader themes of administrative and constitutional law. Uh, tomorrow, we'll take a look more broadly at equity and administrative law. But today, especially in light of the recent, as I said, orders and Supreme Court decisions, we wanted to look more specifically at racial classifications and democratic institutions. We're incredibly lucky to be joined by our speakers today. Uh, the first three are David Bernstein, a university professor of law and executive director uh, of the George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School's Liberty and Law Center. He's also the author recently of a book titled Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. Also joined by Jonathan Barry, he's managing partner of the law firm of Boyd and Gray PLLC. And anytime I mention that firm, I probably have to make a disclaimer. No, the Gray Center is not related to the firm. Boyd and Gray founded that law firm. He supported the Gray Center here over the years, but they are in fact two different institutions. But still, John, we're very glad for you to be here as well. I should add, before John joined the law firm of Boyd and Gray, uh, he served in senior levels at, among other things, the U.S. Department of Labor. Also joined by Professor Joy Milligan, the Martha Lubin Karsh and Bruce A. Karsh Bicentennial Professor of Law at the University of Virginia School of Law. Uh, she also is a leading scholar on so many of these issues, and for all that, she practiced law at the NAACP's Legal Defense and Education Fund. Uh, and before I introduce our moderator, I just want to say the three that I just introduced have all written essays for a forthcoming symposium in the Georgetown Journal of Law and Public Policy alongside uh, tomorrow's speakers. And so we're very grateful for the chance to preview uh, their their papers on today's webinar and, and the podcast. But their conversation will be moderated by Professor Renee Landers. She's professor of law at Suffolk University's Law School, where she's also the faculty director for the Health and Biomedical Law Concentration and their program for the Master of Science in Law on Life Sciences. Before all that, Renee served in senior levels of the Justice Department, the Department of Health and Human Services. And she also is the past uh, chair of the ABA's Administrative Law Section, where I've had the pleasure of working with her and knowing her for many years. So, Renee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for leading the conversation. And now I'll happily join the rest of the audience. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you, Adam, uh, so much for that very generous um, introduction for all of our, the panelists. And I'm especially uh, grateful um, to know that a person like Adam is has succeeded me um, after several years uh, as the ch current chair of this section of administrative law and regulatory practice of the American Bar Association. And um, of course, um, I, I, I'm totally honest in saying that he's doing a much better job than I ever did in that role. Uh, but thank you, everyone, for joining 
joining us today and, and for the webinar and for if you're viewing this later on the podcast. Uh, we're really uh, delighted to be able to present uh, these three um, scholars uh, to talk about their work. Um, I will say, I will echo uh, Adam's comments in the overall introduction that a lot of these issues about race and uh, the and, and government are uh, have been especially top of mind uh, as the litigation involving the Harvard and um, University of North Carolina uh, cases uh, and the challenges to their use of race in admissions policies by the Students for Fair Admission made, uh, made those cases made their way through the courts. And then, of course, uh, you know, a lot of commentary on the Supreme Court's decision. And just this week, um, a, a couple of days ago, the uh, Supreme Court uh, denied uh, cert in the case of um, the coalition for TJ against the Fairfax County School Board, which had, uh, you know, raised a series of follow-on issues about the implications of the students for fair admission cases. So this uh, conversation, I think, will is a, a conversation about the use of race in government programs uh, will continue uh, for quite a while. Uh, the um, but of course, um, as some of the papers allude to, this conversation has been one that the country has been having since inception. And so uh, it, it's very uh, useful to have the insights of these three people who thought about a couple of key issues. Our first speaker will be um, Joy Milligan, uh, who Adam has already given a really uh, powerful introduction for. And her paper is entitled The Counterfactual Administrative State. Uh, beyond equity, the counterfactual administrative state, uh, which she will uh, bring a lens of uh, in examining the, um, the historical origins of where we are in terms of uh, racial equity and in, in a lot of uh, uh, social insurance and other programs in the country and education particularly. And then next we will hear from David Bernstein, who will, um, his paper is entitled Racial Box Checking and the Administrative State, which I think echoes the a lot of the themes in his recent book uh, that Adam alluded to in the overall introduction. And then finally, our third speaker will be Jonathan Berry, who uh, will talk about uh, a couple of uh, examples uh, in the labor uh, regulation context about the use of race in those kinds of programs. So uh, I will say that we will allow uh, each speaker will speak about 10 minutes to uh, present their the main thrust of their ideas and then we will have a period of time where the panelists can interact and respond to each other react to each other's comments uh, I will perhaps ask a few questions and then toward the end of the allotted time we will turn to audience questions so to the extent that people in the audience have questions people please do start sending them in as soon as the question occurs to you um, all right um, so joy I will turn it over to you now to, to start us off Great. Uh, thank you, Renee. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate the chance to be here with all of you today. Um, and so I'll just jump in. The topic of our panel is racial classifications and in democratic institutions. Um, as mentioned, um, my essay for the symposium um, is directed a little bit differently than David's and Jonathan's, which are in closer dialogue with one another. Um, but 
But I do think we all speak to the underlying theme and title of the panel, though I focus less on racial classification's role in the present. So I'm going to first sketch the outlines of my essay and then try to connect it to some of the um, ideas in David and Jonathan's work, which I think we'll also be able to flesh out some of those connections in discussion as well. Uh, so my essay is called Beyond Equity, um, and in it, rather than focusing simply on the current equity approaches in agencies, um, I actually try to call for deeper thinking about how to render the administrative state more legitimate and responsive to democratic majorities, including especially parts of the population like communities of color who were long excluded uh, from decisions about the nature and reach of the administrative state. Uh, one of the elements of this legitimacy deficit that I point to is based in the simple fact that many um, elements in the administrative state, agencies, programs, um, various bureaucracies are relatively old and they were built out at a time when the United States was not functioning as a multiracial democracy. Um, as we all know, black Americans and other people, um, other minorities were denied a role in politics through disenfranchisement in the South and Southwest, uh, even well after the end of slavery and the enactment of the 15th Amendment. Um, once Jim Crow took hold, uh, most of those states really didn't function democratically again until after the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was enacted. Um, so to me, our multiracial democracy is a relatively new, a new development. Um, and as a result of that history, Congress and other governing institutions weren't responsive to the full population. Many aspects of public policy and programs were seriously distorted by that um, democratic deficit in ways that specifically hurt people of color. A major portion um, of my past work has pointed to federal agencies' role in and reasons for participating in Jim Crow um, by funding and supporting segregated schools, job programs, higher ed, farm programs programs, housing, um, all decisions that were rooted at both the agency and congressional um, and higher um, executive level, um, decisions that were rooted in those underlying undemocratic political realities. Um, but for me, the lesson I'm drawn from that history is not that the federal administrative state is pernicious in itself, or even as we may discuss more later, that racial classifications are pernicious in and of themselves. Rather, to me, it shows that agencies were built at specific points in time to respond to particular political actors and constituencies functioning in an undemocratic system that excluded others' voices. Um, and so the, the tremendous, for example, racial wealth disparities that we know now are rooted partly in the fact that those egalitarian policies that grew out of the New Deal and out of that modern administrative state disproportionately benefited whites. Um, and created many forms of economic, human, and political capital in whites, um, in white families that persist, um, have persisted over generations and um, were denied to others in ways that still impact us in the present. So part of my piece is just imagining uh, what sort of administrative state might we have seen under a properly democratic uh, regime? How might that affect how we think about the administrative state and its programs now? Um, I assume as a starting point, and again, this is something we may differ on and want to discuss, but I assume that we have some interest in correcting and responding to present day inequality that grows out of that undemocratic and racially oppressive past. 
Um, so as an example uh, of these types of administrative um, structures and programs and policies um, that stem from, the, from that prior decision-making, um, undemocratic decision-making, I focus on the example of federal aid to education, the history of that long-running legislative proposal. It emerged first in Reconstruction, um, and it was uh, uh, backed and fought for for decades um, without ever being implemented or adopted until the 1960s in the same era that gave us the major civil rights statutes. Um, and the context for driving these legislative um, attempts at securing broad federal aid um, to the states to support their education systems was a concern with really grave inequalities in the level at which states did and could support their public schools. Per pupil spending varied massively in 1880 and 1920 and 1936, just as it does now by state and locality um, and other factors, including obviously race. Um, so there was also, along with that funding, there was a concern with the very disparate outcomes that we're seeing in terms of um, uh, people's literacy and their productivity um, as a result of being in these differently funded schools and the overall impact on the nation's well-being. Those concerns were most extreme in regards to the South uh, throughout that time. Um, the meager funding and high illiteracy rates in the South relative to the rest of the nation played a key role consistently in these legislative uh, campaigns. And race obviously inflected and shaped those disparities, disparities that were much worse for African Americans, both at the start of these um, campaigns in the Reconstruction era because of the legacy of slavery, and then going forward due to the underfunding of segregated schools and lack thereof completely and the failure to provide you know, high schools and higher education in many areas for Black Americans. So for Black Americans in the South, uh, and more broadly, for civil rights leaders at the national level, like the heads of the NAACP and other um, civil rights organizations, federal aid to education looked critical. And as part of that proposed legislation, they also backed a much stronger and more robust federal education department. This is part of an overall commitment, which we tend to forget about as a historical matter on the part of um, uh, black leaders and civil rights groups to broad and uh, generously redistributive social policy implemented at, at the level of the federal government. In the education context, these federal aid to education bills often looked very close to passage, um, excruciatingly close, um, but they ultimately failed until the 1960s uh, for, for some complex political reasons when we look at it in a granular way. Um, but the underlying uh, reality had one constant in within all of these periods, a sweeping disfranchisement and exclusion of black and other minorities Americans' interests from the political process. That undemocratic regime also excluded the interests of poor whites and under, uh, other underserved white populations who would have benefited greatly from a regime of egalitarian school funding. Finally, in 1965, we saw the enactment of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, our first general federal aid law, um, and we didn't see a federal cabinet level Department of Education until 1980. Um, so these are relatively new developments. Um, my ultimate point is that if we root ourselves in a very deep understanding of our history, both the institutions and the policy landscape that we have are shaped by that undemocratic and racially exclusionary past. Um, 
And the, looking back to a counterfactual like this one makes us helps us realize that the present reality, including the lack of, say, a commitment to equal school funding for every child, a which is obviously a race-neutral general social policy goal, and support for that kind of um, policy from a strong federal education department, um, that the lack of those things are not necessary outcomes. They're not even necessarily democratically chosen ones, given the strong path dependence of our institutions, the ways in which choices made earlier in our political development become harder and harder to overcome over time. Even now, when formal democracy is mostly secured, we think. Um, as for the connection between this history and the more modern history and debate over racial classifications that I think David and Jonathan will uh, foreground, I would say for now simply that I do think we have to take account of that longer history when we grapple with the schemes and agency role that have been built out since, um, since mid-century and especially since the 1970s. Um, I do see those agency schemes as responses to the earlier longer history and as attempts to counteract earlier democratic deficits. And I'll stop there, thanks. Thanks so much, Joy. Uh, that was a very uh, good synopsis of the paper, uh, and I'm sure there's a lot to discuss after we hear from um, David and Jonathan. So David's uh, paper is called Racial Box Checking and the Administrative State, um, and uh, as I said earlier, uh, builds uh, on, his, on his recent book. So uh, David, please take it away. Sure, thanks. So the main theme of my paper is to point out that the standard American racial and ethnic classifications we're all familiar with, uh, both culturally, but also when we check boxes, when we apply for college, request a mortgage, fill out, fill out medical paperwork, and so forth, aren't the product of some spontaneous order or just you know, what society decided somehow, but rather an obscure bureaucratic process that, as I describe in my book Classified, amounted to an a combination of amateur anthropology and sociology, interest group lobbying, incompetence, inertia, lack of public oversight, and happenstance. And in particular, and I have to admit, I was writing about race and legal history for most of my academic career and before I wrote my book and researched it, uh, and the article that led to it, I had never heard of this myself. Federal Office Management and Budget enacted a rule in the Federal Register called Statistical Directive Number 15 in 1978, and the idea was to create uniform ethnic and racial classifications primarily just so that data could be efficiently shared and compared across federal agencies because different federal agencies were using different classifications and different definitions and it was hard to compare educational or civil rights or any other data across agencies if no one could agree on who they were uh, collecting data about. Uh, so oddly enough, this um, law, this rule became extremely important over time but gets almost no attention in the law review literature. I tried to look it up in Westlaw in all the different ways that the directive is referred to. I found about 34 articles, including two of my own, uh, most of them obscure. So this is something that doesn't really get any attention in the law review literature, so I thought it was uh, useful to uh, talk about it some more. So we're pretty much familiar with the relevant classifications, American Indian, Asian, or Pacific Islander, with Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiian later broken off, Black, uh, White, and Hispanic, which is officially the only ethnic rather than racial classification. And I think one thing that people, most people are surprised by is not only did the government 
create these classifications, but they actually define them. So there are actually official definitions of what it means to be uh, black, Hispanic, etc. And they're all mutually inconsistent. They use different criteria, whether it be geography or culture or uh, or continent of origin. Um, at this t- uh, you know, at the time. This was done not secretly, but you won't find articles in the New York Times at the time about this because no one really was paying attention. Again, these classifications were solely meant for statistic-keeping purposes. They warned, the OMB warned in the Federal Register, by the way, they said these are not, they didn't use the word by the way, but they said these are not to be used for uh, eligibility for any government program. They're not meant to be scientific. They're not meant to be anthropological. But those warnings and caveats, not entirely surprisingly in retrospect, were studiously ignored. The result was that the classifications have had a profound effect on American life, especially on how Americans identify themselves and others. So there are certain identities that barely existed in 1977, such as Hispanic and Asian American that are now mainstream, but there were other identities that were quite common in the 1970s, like Italian American or Chicano, that very few people use anymore. The social influence of government racial classifications is constantly reinforced uh, by the fact that all sorts of studies that come out about American life use this classification scheme. Some of these are just by habit, like pollsters will use them and there's no one requiring them to do so. But in a lot of cases, if you're a young researcher trying to get your PhD or trying to get tenure and you want to do research on ethnic, racial, or just general American life, you have little choice but to use these Directive 15 classifications because the biggest data source are the reports that the Census Bureau does every 10 years, and those are done based on these classifications. Uh, for that matter, let's say you want to study education in Florida. Well, you could do it by Hispanic because all the schools report Hispanic data to the Department of Education. But if you want to do it by breaking down how are Puerto Ricans in Florida doing or how are Cuban Americans doing uh, or Mexican Americans, you wouldn't be able to find that easily. You'd have to do your own research. And most young or even not so young academics don't have the resources to make their own databases. The Directive 15 classifications also quickly became affirmative action categories. Uh, and whenever you think about affirmative action or your, you know, whatever position you take on that, it's kind of interesting that the classifications we use were not meant for that purpose. In fact, again, it was sort of disclaimed. These are not meant to create eligibility for programs. Uh, in particular, the classifications are universally used in higher education and with occasional slight modifications in government contracting for eligibility for minority business enterprises. And this has significant effects on who benefits and who doesn't benefit from the relevant policies. Uh, as uh, Professor Milligan uh, suggested, a lot of the programs that we're going to be referencing or, or at least alluding to were originally created primarily to bring uh, African Americans who had suffered through slavery, Jim Crow, and so forth, uh, and were suffering the after effects of that into the economic mainstream. And that seemed to be a plausible outcome of uh, the, of using these classifications in 1978 when America was still overwhelmingly either white or black, and even the relatively small percentage of Hispanics uh, were generally considered to be white until the cl- they were separately classified. Uh, but since then, we've had large-scale immigration from Asia, Latin America, Africa, the Caribbean um, since the 1970s. 
And we've also had a significant increase in interracial, interethnic marriage rates. So today, for example, for minority business enterprises, anyone who's classified as anything other than white is eligible. So anyone who's Asian, anyone who's Hispanic, anyone who's Native American, anyone who's black. Uh, and the end result is that the vast majority of these minority business enterprises go not to African Americans, not to people who were even in the United States before the civil rights, whose families were in the United States before the civil rights movement, but to post-1965 immigrants and their descendants. And I've frankly yet to hear anyone defending the proposition that someone should be able to move here from Buenos Aires, stay here for five years, become a citizen, suddenly they get a preference uh, for minority business, for minority business enterprises. And in fact, the only the best data I could find suggests that less than 20% of the minority business enterprise money at the federal level at least goes to African Americans. And of those, it's not clear because no one keeps the statistic how much goes to immigrants and how much is going to the original intended beneficiaries. In education, most beneficiaries of affirmative action preferences for African Americans at elite schools like Ivy League schools are first and second generation immigrants, again, not descendants of American slaves. And this is a direct result of Directive 15 defining black or African American as someone descended from one of the black races of Africa. That's the exact definition. And that's, thus it doesn't differentiate people who uh, have had a family history of oppression and discrimination and violence in the United States from those who just arrived uh, from other countries recently. Directive 15 has also had profound, and in my opinion, profoundly negative effects on biomedical research. In the late 1990s, Congress mandated that the FDA and NIH have to recruit enough, whatever that means, people by each category, and also analyze their data by race. Now, the NIH and FDA didn't say what classifications had to be used, but both agencies, for obvious political reasons, did not want to, you know, try to create an expert panel saying, hey, what kind of racial classifications would make sense in the context of biomedical research? So instead, and despite the fact that Directive 15 classifications were explicitly not meant to be scientific, they just adopted those classifications, which means that these crude Directive 15 classifications are now in practice used as pseudoscientific racial categories in biomedical research. And this encourages a pernicious racial essentialism in scientific research and medical practice that has no scientific grounding. So just to give some examples of the problems this causes, biomedical researchers are mixing individuals with little genetic commonality in genes, unlike race, is actually not just socially constructed, but scientifically important into a single research classification. So for example, if you're a researcher and you have to satisfy the requirement to use Asian American subjects, you could go to Minnesota, to Minneapolis, recruit uh, however many Hmong immigrants and their descendants that you need to satisfy that criteria, uh, and then you're set. Now, this is not going to give you useful information for Indian, Asian Indian Americans or Pakistani Americans or Filipinos who really have nothing genetically or sociologically in common with the Hmong, except they have to be classified as Asian American by the government. Indeed, you're not even really going to get useful data for Hmong Americans because when this data gets reported to the government and in medical journals, it will just say Asian Americans, and you won't have any idea of which group of Asian Americans it was tested on. I suppose you could actually email the author and ask if they'll tell you, but it will not be obvious from the study itself. So given all these points, uh, I'm not going to, I don't take the strong position that we should never classify anybody in any 
context, but I do suggest that it's time to completely overhaul the classifications. The classifications, again, were meant primarily for statistical purposes to enforce civil rights laws and that sort of thing. It wasn't meant to have all these different societal uses that we've uh, come ac become accustomed to, and therefore they weren't uh, they weren't created with that in mind and aren't really um, well suited for that. Uh, so even if you believe in all sorts of re remedial or reparative or diversity kind of programs, you have to question well, why these specific criteria. So um, we really don't want these classifications as they're being used now to dictate how social science researchers study the American population, how scientific researchers undertake undertaken, who's eligible for affirmative action, and so on. So first thing I would do is say, well, you know, do we always need to classify people? I'm not saying you never do, but uh, it's sort of done by road now. So I would say the government should give a reasonably good justification, maybe even a compelling interest uh, to satisfy the 14th Amendment before it does classify individuals by race. And second, to the extent that the classifications are justified by compelling interest, you actually should be using classifications that kind of are narrowly tailored to actually uh, promote that interest. And in particular, the OMB really needs to recognize that, the, that given that the classifications are used for distinct purposes, they need to be tailored for those purposes. So if you're trying to study public health, uh, it might be very different than if you're studying trying to study the effects of a particular drug on particular people with particular genetic backgrounds, which might also be different than who you might want to be eligible for an affirmative action program and so forth. And so on. In many cases, it would be useful, for example, to break the broad crude classifications into more meaningful subcategories. And I'd say, you know, this is way too broad a thought to uh, to cover in, in the time I have remaining, but my brief concluding thought, nevertheless, is that in the long run, we should be considering whether we need to have any sort of official racial classification in the United States. And I think that... Um, a lot of how you feel about that depends on how optimistic you are or not that the United States could overcome its history of racism and become a country with sort of a non-racial or multiracial identity. I think if you're skeptical of that, you're likely to say, well, since that's never going to happen or I doubt it's going to happen, we need to create uh, social justice by making sure each group gets its fair share. If you are more optimistic about that, as I think I am, uh, for reasons we could maybe get into in the Q&A, uh, I think that um, we could imagine a future where your race or ethnic background doesn't uh, have much of an effect on what you could expect from your life prospects. Uh, and if that is something that we can aspire to reasonably, we at least want to make sure the government doesn't get in the way. Thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, I don't know, maybe 25 years? I don't know. Um, so uh, would be enough time. Uh, so uh, the... Um uh, our last speaker, uh, that's very helpful, and I, I think David's paper um, is a helpful setup to what um, Jonathan Berry is going to talk about. And um, I just realized that Jonathan, actually, the version of the paper I have doesn't actually have a title on it. Um, so maybe Jonathan. Suggestions it, welcome. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> and, uh, but, he, but he talks about, uh, you know, these uh, issues of how classifications are used in a couple of parts. Uh, one, the administrative state created the current racial classification system and now requires it and racial classification creates momentum towards racial discrimination and then he has a case study um, as I alluded to in the introduction about uh, a uh, the use of these classifications in uh, an apprenticeship program that the Department of Labor um, 
is uh, managing, and uh, and he, unlike David, um, says that um, we should end the use of racial classifications in government programs. So um, I'll turn it over to you, Jonathan. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much. Um, it's great to be here with y'all today. Um, so yeah, to, I think to just to, to take off where take up where the conversation has um, has just just left off. Um, uh, I'd like to to, to lay out um, uh, how it is that um, the, the the modern day practice of racial classification, uh, starting by and large with the uh, with the governmental scheme that David has researched uh, so so deeply, like educated me personally about it. This is where I, I learned about this really from uh, from his research. Um, uh, to my, my intent is to what I discuss in further detail in the paper uh, is to go to show the ways in which um, these schemes of classification uh, pretty broadly, maybe not universally, um, but pretty broadly have a, a tendency to encourage race discrimination um, today uh, in ways that we ought to be uh, really concerned about um, and in ways that um, I think commonly could be could well be unlawful under modern um, equal protection doctrine. Um, so, the, the kind of the, the the core issue to kind of look forward to the, the the ideal state or at least better state that 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 David gestured at uh, towards the end um, uh, in terms of where we'd like to be headed. I would say at the outset that um, racial classification. And the, the racial discrimination and uh, dysfunctional or problematic governance that it encourages, um, it serves only to heighten the salience of race uh, in our society. Now, um, I agree. I agree completely with Joy, and I, I don't know how any student of history could not too many, too many negatives. But I agree that there we have that this country has a, a very sad history. Uh, when it comes to race relations, race-based chattel slavery and race-based segregation, most profoundly, but not not exclusively, those things um, that we we that, that have left deep scars uh, and that we need to continue to grapple with. Um, uh, the part of the challenge today, um, and, and David has already talked about this a little bit, is um, is one of is one of traceability um, to the modern situation um, where we now have. There's no question that um, some of the disparities that we see uh, continuing to persist along racial lines, say, um, are themselves the fruit uh, of some of those race-based policies. Um, it is also the case uh, in, in many of the cases that those, those policies ended decades ago. Uh, and it's also the case that we now have the, the confounding and confusing factors of uh, all these inflows of immigration from different parts of the world um, as well as uh, rates of intermarriage, such that personal families, personal their their family histories start to draw on more threads um, of, of of American history. Um, I would to talk about to talk about it in a in sort of a, a, a transcendent or atemporal dimension for a second. Um, I would I'd submit that race is an objectively minor attribute of the human person, um, and foregrounding it unnecessarily diminishes the un inherent and equal dignity of every human being, um, and it leaves our society degraded in the process. 
Um, here, I think, is where Justice Harlan's dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson had it just right in a line that I think deserves to be more famous. In respect of civil rights common to all citizens, the Constitution of the United States does not, I think, permit any public authority to know, to know the race of those entitled to be protected in the enjoyment of such rights. Um, I think that's, that's fascinating and, uh, and a concept I hope to unpack further. So uh, on the genesis of these modern classifications, um, as I said, I defer completely uh, to uh, David's research. Uh, just one concept I would want to add um, uh, as a comment is, is that of legibility. Um, in order to maximize the effect of anti-discrimination mandates, the government needs crisp definitions of race to make it maximally legible and recordable. Um, I get this analogy from uh, James Scott's great book, Seeing Like a State. Um, look at um, the example of medieval rulers uh, struggling to tax peasants in villages where, as was common, uh, no one had a true last name. Um, uh, so in, in that situation, you know, how can you how can you know who is who, let alone how much to tax, you know, A versus B? Like these guys are both named John. Like, what do I what do I do? Um, so um, commonly, middle aged rulers, middle ages rulers would force last names um, upon their subjects. The most recent example of this I'm aware of is the imperial Spanish imposition of, of Spanish surnames um, on the Philippines in, I want to say, 1849, um, uh, I believe. So the power to rule is thus augmented by uh, the power to classify. Um, and I think, understandably, um, the civil rights revolution wanted classifications too. Um, so. Uh, uh, David has already talked about some of these schemes. One more I would add um, with my area of focus uh, is the EEO-1 form, um, a mandatory data collection that requires all mid-sized private employers to submit demographic info, including race, um, to the EEOC. Um, then the, the example that uh, Renee has anticipated, my main one, uh, my old agency, uh, the Department of Labor, recently proposed updating its apprenticeship rules um, and this is a proposal didn't have to um, enter into racial controversies, but um, they, they made their way in regardless. The proposal requires that apprenticeship providers uh, report on the demographic information on every, of every participant um, and uh, requires sponsors, apprenticeship sponsors to submit written plans for uh, the equitable recruitment and retention of apprentices. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that in, uh, in, in a moment, is that how central these kinds of requirements of classification are. Um, uh, this is uh, in some way reminiscent of what's been going on in corporate HR um, for, uh, for quite some time. Um, and I, I, a lot of this is from uh, research that uh, Frank Dobbin at Harvard uh, has written about in depth. Um, so uh, especially with the advent of disparate impact liability under Title VII, uh, thanks to the court's decision in Griggs, um, there, was, there was a lot of uncertainty uh, among business leaders about uh, exactly what their anti-discrimination legal obligations were. And to make matters worse, from a clarity perspective, EEOC did not have, or certainly did not clearly have, uh, substantive rulemaking authority um, in, the, in this space. So that ended up uh, empowering the HR profession to develop series of, of best practices that ended up being used as um, aids to compliance or as affirmative showings of good faith. 
Um, two practices that uh, that bear special mention here are uh, offices, HR's creation of offices to deal with EEO, um, and second, um, HR began co- began collecting data to on progress towards integration and the reduction of bias. Um, and and holding uh, managers individually accountable for driving uh, diversification um, uh, by by using racial classification data as a key part of performance evaluation, um, we started seeing more business decision makers naturally making decisions on the basis of race and internalizing a race conscious attitude. Um, uh, our, our, our federal public uh, administrative agencies um, contain a similar uh, infrastructure revolving around racial classification. I'll focus on uh, data collection uh, and research, um, uh, such as the Chief Evaluation Office uh, and the evidence policy, the evidence-based policymaking space, which was a component of the office I used to oversee at DOL. Um, these uh, uh, these these offices and the nonprofit and the research community that they interact with um, tend to place a primary focus on collecting race classified data uh, and using it to drive policymakers um, to make decisions with changing racial balance um, at the front of mind. Um, and then, uh, in turn, the government is uh, ensuring that race classified data is collected, published, and used um, to hector both policymakers and private parties to change outcomes to achieve a different racial balance. Um, so, how does how does this happen? With you know, to, to take this example of classification uh, inserted by uh, by by DOL. Um, imagine what happens when they when they collect this data. Um, so first, that evaluation office is going to publish a report uh, documenting um, underperformance or underattainment um, among certain minority groups among apprenticeships. Um, DOL maybe organizes a conference for operators of apprenticeships and uh, gets consultants to lecture on the need uh, to increase representation. Uh, uh, DOL uh, gets a contractor to review apprenticeship plan submissions, and the contractor uh, suggests rewrites to those submissions that ensure an increase in specific races' participation or passage. Um, it's 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 tough to see how this does not add up to uh, an encouragement of discrimination uh, on the basis of race, which is again um, the thing alongside actual requirement. Of discrimination that runs afoul of of modern equal protection doctrine. Um, I think there are, as I've implied, I think there's very serious um, legal issues there. Um, it may be it is uh, it is entirely uh, within the scope of the doctrine to allow um, uh, to allow classification when necessary to remedy past discrimination and sort of the scope of that of that remedial exception to uh, the general bar on race conscious. Um, state action is, uh, is is certainly worth a lot of discussion, though I think it is subject to the traceability issue uh, that has come up um, in this in this conversation. Um, and there may be places where classification does not encourage race discrimination. And I think I think David has identified some candidates there. Um, but the broad-based practice of classification um, should almost always be unconstitutional, in in my view. So I've, I've gone on a little long. Um, I want to. I'll end with um, with one more observation from Justice Harlan in his Plessy dissent, 
um, where he advises uh, that we ought to be obliterating the race line from our systems of governments, national and state, and placing our free institutions upon the broad and sure foundation of the equality of all men before the law. Thanks. Thanks very much, Jonathan. So this is the point uh, where um, I want to um, go back to Joy in the first instance and then David to see if you would like to, uh, you know, augment what you said or respond to anything that the other speakers have said, uh, react to it in any way. I mean, I think um, some other countries, you know, have taken this approach that um, Jonathan is just articulating, you know, France being a notable one. Uh, And... um, it's not clear to me that's worked out much better for them than it has for us. And so I guess the question is, you know, we, you know, so this, there's a lot to discuss here because if we take seriously this question that, um, you know, there was at least a problem in the past, which maybe has current effects, you know, figuring out what to do about that today seems to be the challenge of our, of our time. So anyway, I'll, I'll be quiet and see if Joy wants to jump in here and um, comment on anything. Sure. Um, so thanks. It, it was really interesting to listen to both of you um, and to read your essays as well, which um, fed a lot of thought for me. I mean, I think what I found interesting in, in these conversations for a while is how much like really difficult empirical questions and priors about empirical questions sit under uh, opposing policy positions. Um, so I guess in that light, kind of in light of that background thought, I wanted to raise a couple of things for each of you. If, if I'll try to go quick, if, if you'll allow it, Renee. Oh, yeah, um, no, of course. So, I mean, for David, I, I learned a lot also from, um, from this and from your book. Um, I guess like one thing, you know, you do allude to the social influence of government classifications. And I find it really hard, like empirically, how do we know, uh, especially tracing the longer history, which I I, I know you point out um, in your book, you know, what we know about the longer history of government racial classification, you know, which we had a segregated military, we had segregated workforces and federal agencies, we could trace a lot further into state and local practices. and in just kind of the social reality of race, how do how would we even untease the way government, I, I see what you're saying in sort of the biomedical research or something, I can see how that traces, but kind of if we wanna to come to broad conclusions about the impact and net harm or benefit of racial classifications, I find it hard to deconstruct from underlying kind of um, everyday racism and social realities of race in our society from like how we would isolate, you know, the OMB directive and its um, continuing life. And somewhat relatedly, I think, I found really interesting, you didn't, I don't think you mentioned this as much in your presentation, but you brought up the example of um, biracial people and immigrants, uh, African immigrants, um, people of African descent immigrants, and kind of how they mix into the category of African American. Um, And I'm sympathetic, you know, again, rooted in history to the idea that we might want to distinguish in some ways um, between like, sort of people's history of being here and being subjected to um, US-based discrimination. But I also wonder how we would, you know, given that we had a one-drop rule, say for the biracial people, um, that we have kind of the legacy of hypo-descent mandates for who was subjected to slavery and Jim Crow, um, how would we distinguish like why biracial people don't experience kind of the reality of race in relatively equivalent ways to any other um, black identified person 
And the immigrants are kind of like, well, if we start parsing like Europe, you did slavery in the Caribbean. So folks from the Caribbean will think you're responsible for any inequities they've suffered. And then maybe when they get here, if they're responsible, you know, where it's only present day discrimination, it just seems a bit hard empirically to kind of dissect all that. Um, but I'm very sympathetic to your underlying point, which is maybe the current classifications are really coarse and miss and, and um, could be much improved. Um, uh, Jonathan, uh, I, again, like I could just come back to kind of, um, I think we're more starkly different in where we're coming out on racial classifications and their uh, utility in the present. Um, I guess, you know, I, I, it struck me when you said, uh, that your transcendent atemporal take on race, and now I'm paraphrasing, I didn't write this part down, so correct me, but I wrote down something like race is a relatively minor aspect of human experience and identity. But I wonder if like, that's not true for some people. Do you know, like that's very difficult to adjudicate in some like permanent lasting truth sense. Um, And so I wonder if that's just kind of an empirical disagreement about what race is and how it works into people's experience of the world. And if we should be kind of open to the possibility that there are multiple uh, multiple experiences of that. Um, I've been in the Labor Department archives a lot lately, actually. So I guess I would just ask you. you. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, there's a, such a long history of apprenticeships being whites only. And like the labor di- department didn't do anything about that for decades. Um, so like, should that matter for how we think about the, whether we should measure what's happening in apprenticeships? I'll stop. Sorry for being long. Oh, no, that's all right. Can I just add one thing, maybe? And Joy's comment alluded to this, and then I'll let, um, you know, Jonathan and David speak. But, uh, you know, my experience is... Um, you know, I, you know, my parents were married before Loving v. Virginia was decided they're interracial couple, right? But the world has always taken one look at me and said, she is black, and that's how we're going to categorize her. And so I guess the question is, does that, exp- that social construct matter in these conversations? And I think Joy was kind of alluding to that a little bit in some of what she was saying. And I, you know, so I, and I guess that's really another issue. It's not just technically, you know, can we draw the line from what happened in the past to today, but how people are experienced, experienced in the world today is another aspect of this conversation. So anyway, I'll be quiet now too. Uh, so lot to unpack there, but let me try to do it relatively briefly. As far as the issues of hypo-descent and immigrants, I mean, these are all really tough issues. And, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't say, well, since Barack Obama was both a child of an immigrant or not even really an immigrant, a temporary resident of the U.S. Uh, and a white woman that his uh, success had no bearing on African-Americans, right? So there's obviously a lot to unpack there. But what I would say is that um, it's the sort of thing that there hasn't... It wasn't like, well, a lot of people sat around and discussed it and ironed out all the different possibilities and how we want to handle this. It just sort of happened by, um, by, by, by like, 
you know, bureaucratic fiat. Um, in fact, there was a time in the late 80s when African and Caribbean immigration were picking up, and someone, I forget who, wrote to the OMB and said, oh, we're not really sure how to classify immigrants from Africa. Are they black, African-American, or should they put in be a separate immigrant category? And OMB just said, um, okay, put them in the same category. But it wasn't like there was a public debate or roundtables and research. It was just really done in that sense. Uh, and I think that in the context of universities, uh, they're really, it's, you know, and, and affirmative action, for example, there really weren't people who at any point sat down and said, hey, you know, our class is becoming increased of African-American students is increasingly first and second generation immigrants. Is that consistent with our vision of what diversity looks like? Is it not? Why? They, again, it's just sort of, well, that's what the, the Department of Education says they're black, so, and they look black, so we'll go with that. And by the way, it's sort of ironic and, and you know, to me at least somewhat troubling that the criteria for being black or slash African-American in federal law is descent from the from any of the black races of Africa, which is a one-drop rule, essentially, and it's sort of been now codified into federal law. Um, it could have been something like that, plus, you know, affiliation with African-American culture or something, but they chose really to just incorporate uh, the, the rule. And in fairness to them, again, it wasn't like, you know, no one was really thinking about that deeply. I mean, one of the reasons these problems weren't at the uh, forefront of people's minds is again, you know, over 80% of the population was white at the time. Uh, about 12% was African American. All the other groups were kind of small. Uh, um, Hispanics were the only other relatively large group, but they weren't really a group yet. Uh, they were mostly, you know, Mexican Americans and Cuban Americans. There wasn't the pan national identity, and they're mostly considered white. And because we had this history of hypo-descent, I think everyone at the time kind of thought, well, we all know who's black and who's white. That's not really an issue. And the fact, the idea there'd be all these immigrants and a lot more interracial marriage just wasn't something on the horizon. So again, I'm not saying what the correct answer necessarily is about how and in what context to treat subgroups of African-Americans differently. I'm just saying that it hasn't really been addressed by the powers that be. It just happened by inertia. As for the social reality of race, I mean, there is a, you know, there is, um, one way uh, that you can look up some of this stuff and see the results is just to go back on Google Ngram or other research databases and see where people refer to as Hispanic in 1970. When did that start to become a phrase people used? When did people start to use Latino? When did Asian Americans start to come into uh, uh, play? Interestingly enough, Hispanic Latino slash Latino wasn't really used much until it became a federal category, but people on at the grassroots level have come to accept it. If you the survey data shows, if you ask people who we call Latino or Hispanic, do you consider yourselves that? They will mostly say, I mostly think of myself either as just American or as Cuban American or Mexican American, but I also am fine if you call me Hispanic or Latino. On the other hand, for Asian Americans, where they really, really don't have anything in common except the, they don't even have the linguistic commonality, uh, most Asian Americans will say, I don't want to be called Asian American at all. It's not part of my identity. Some do, like 40%, but 60%, they don't call me that at all. So there's an example where, so far at least, the classification has not been as influential at the grassroots uh, as you might expect, although it is very influential in our sort of academic circles. So, um, but, you know, there, I, I didn't get into this in the paper, but in the book, there are all sorts of twists and turns in the history. Everyone knew we were going to have a black classification and a white classification. But who else would be in there and in what context and how it would be defined was really 
uh, a matter of happenstance. You could easily imagine twists and turns where we would have had a Chicano classification and no other Hispanic classification, where Asian Indians would have been white rather than uh, Asian, which almost happened, and, and so and where there would have been certain white subgroups like Eastern European Catholic, or whatever, and that didn't happen. So um, it's definitely had some effect, uh, but you know, as you know, counter, as maybe I'll get to comment in your paper, counterfactual history is always kind of tough. Jonathan. Yeah, um, just a couple of couple of brief uh, follow-ups, because I, I did get the benefit of, of batting cleanup. Um, one is, so, uh, you know, Joy, I think you, I think you put your finger on really the, uh, the, the question of, of priors here. Um, I didn't quite, I know you, uh, I know I'm going, um, uh, I kind of on the spot came up with the descriptors of what did I say transcendent or, a, or atemporal as my as my modifiers, and I, but what I didn't mean to say and, and didn't it was not my intent. I don't think I did say was that I think today and that Renee alluded to this as well that today the the social reality of race is a is a minor thing. I don't I don't believe that. Uh, like that would I think that would blinker today's reality. Um, the I, I would say I wouldn't characterize it as um, I wouldn't characterize it as much of an uh, a like an empirical disagreement or empirical question so much as so much as more like philosophical or, or, or metaphysical. Um, uh, the analogy I'll use and like uh, you know enough decades ago this th- th- this would not have been a, a contentious analogy but I can't think of a better one so I'm going to use this one right now um, is uh, is the analogy between race and sex um, and specifically that um, so I would I would phrase it something along the lines of the sort of the the objective attributes of uh, the objective attributes of race um, are are relatively minor but there is a thick sort of social layer social constru- constructed layer um, on top of that and the different I would make a difference between that and sex where um, uh, where I, I, I do believe that sexual differentiation male and female um, is a major constitutive aspect of any human person anywhere any place any time in history um, and then on top of that there is also a thick uh, social constructed layer um, as well like maybe a better maybe a better a- a- analogy would be that's slightly less contentious uh, these days would simply would be language which like has a natural foundation um, but atop a- a which there is a, um, a thick social construct um, then then also just briefly on the question of the point about uh, DOL and apprenticeships yeah I'm I'm, um, I'm I'm well aware that there is a um, you know, you go, you go back far enough, simply into the 20th century, and you've got a lot of you've got a lot of race discrimination um, baked into uh, a lot of these things. I, I don't I, I don't know. I'm just not aware of the extent to which U.S. DOL was uh, call it affirmatively part of the problem, as opposed to having failed to intervene. I don't I don't know. Um, uh, probably probably some of both. I would I would surmise. Um, the challenge, though, today is um, uh, like working through the like. I, I like. I, I. I think I share your intuition that that history continues to have some relevance to how we think about the the policy questions today. Um, the hard part for me is 
is figuring out how much. Um, and I certainly my impression, I've not, um, uh, I've, I've not yet studied this. I plan to look on this actually in the next couple of weeks. Um, my, my impression is that um, the disparities today in this regard are, are far smaller, far smaller. Um, and uh, certainly within the margin where it begins to raise much more substantial questions about whether the game is worth the candle to try to affirmatively intervene now um, on the basis of race. Uh, so uh, somebody mentioned the New York Times earlier uh, because the New York, on that point, the New York Times today has this uh, article about a new study, which I have not read the study of um, you know the reemergence of poverty after the expiration of you know some of the pandemic era uh, child tax credits and things like that, which are um, you know have a, have a heavy disparately racial impact. So I just you know it's you know it's sort of the, this conversation is one that you know can go on and on and on because you know we have new interventions and then things happen and uh, we have to examine you know kind of what the influences have been. But you know I, I'm going to say one other thing and then I'll ask a, mo a moderator type question. Which is um, one thing um, about um, this conversation about how historically have people of other races, not blacks, been viewed, you know, in, in, in the United States. And there have been, you know, cases that, but they just don't get as much visibility as the ones involving black Americans have gotten in the legal literature, you know, because the, the For Loving, there was Perez against Sharp in California about uh, could California prohibit, you know, somewhat of Mexican descent, I think it was, to, to for marrying a white person. And it was, you know, a California state case. Uh, there were, you know, cases in um, uh, the Jim Crow states about, you know, were um, Asian Americans, were they white or were they colored, quote unquote colored, and which school did they have to attend? And so I think, and then there's, a, you know, a, um, a jury case, uh, Hernandez v. Texas, I think is the name of it, it you know, which, you know, had, deals with the same issue about, you know, service on a jury. So, I, you know, these are cases from like the 40s, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, around that era. So I think that, um, you know, these, these other groups, too, have had this kind of issue of trying, you know, the the world, the society, trying governments trying to figure out where do they fit, and in a society that really has been organized by whites and then everybody else. So I think that um, you know I don't know. It's one thing worth exploring as we think about the history um, of these things. But I guess the the main the moderator's question I'll ask is that um, so you know David makes you know this really uh, powerful argument about the imprecision and inaccuracy of racial categories, and that you know to some extent they may not be helpful in, depending on what the program is that for which they're used if they're used at all and then Jonathan argues that any race um, should be unlawful because it's creating more harm than good I'm, I'm Par grossly oversimplifying what you both appreciate said. that, but go, go, go on. <laughs> yes, okay. Uh, so, so I guess the question is, what is your response to Joy's argument that the current structure and the content of the programs are a result of democratic disenfranchisement carried out on the basis of race and class? You know, is do you agree that that's a problem? 
And then if that's a problem, does it rise to the level of intentional discrimination that could justify a remedy under, you know, how we now see current equal protection doctrine, or is that not enough? So I really appreciated Joy's paper because it reminded me of my first book, uh, Only One Place of Redress, African-Americans' Labor Regulations of the Course from Reconstruction to the New Deal, where I talked about how a lot of the labor rules that are typically celebrated uh, in academia were actually created at a time when black people couldn't vote, uh, and not surprisingly, or largely couldn't vote, and not surprisingly, uh, either didn't take the interests of black Americans into account, or... Um, if or were affirmatively intended to harm them, and uh, you know, so and it was sort of attacking the godlike figure of FDR implicitly uh, and the New Deal. So it did not go over well uh, with my co- uh, in, in some circles, uh, especially because my I was well. Which could be my second point, partly because I said, well, they would have been better off if there wasn't regulation at all. Everyone said, well, they would have been better off with better regulation. And of course, that's true, but how do you get better regulation if the people can't vote? Uh, but that raises an additional point, which I wanted to raise about Joy's paper, which is that, of course, in some ways, African Americans would have been better off if they could have voted, and certainly at the state and local level, if they were you know, 52% of the population of Mississippi, they would have been a lot better off being able to vote, uh, being 52% of the voters and being like 2% of the voters. However, I think at the national level, things get more complicated. Partly that the federalism of the United States wasn't simply, you know, there was, was deep-rooted uh, support for federalism beyond any racial implications, but also, I think it's a very. I mean, I, I, my colleague Ilya Soman once talked about trying to write an article, a more theoretical article, about when will national politics be good for minority groups, and we never did that. But it did occur to me that it's not always the case that at a national level, if a group that is concentrated, especially if it's concentrated locally, will do better uh, politically uh, as they get more power. Sometimes there's a reaction against that group getting power, and other groups that might have been in conflict will then unite against the, the less popular, the group that's overall less popular. And I don't know, you know, I think comparative study would be interesting in this regard. It occurs to me, for example, I'm not an expert on this, but I know that Jews could vote in Poland uh, before World War II, and they were like 10% of the population of Poland. They had 10% of the seats in, or so in the parliament, the SEJM, I think it's, I don't know how to pronounce that, S-E-J-M. And they still managed to pass laws restricting, you know, Jews to being X percent of the universities and all that, and basically all the other parties uh, were against the Jewish parties. So, um, it's, so one has to just keep in, in mind. Of course, uh, one could imagine a better, a, a different past, and a better past uh, without. African-American disenfranchisement, and certainly um, the Voting Rights Act was probably the most important piece of civil rights legislation, which gets, even though it gets less attention than some of the others. But uh, it's not always a happy story. Depending, a lot depends on the political structure of how whether minority groups have get, you know, are inherently able to influence the process or not. And you have to look at how would it work out if, you know, if there were if there had been 50 black members of Congress in 1920, would that have, you know, how much better would things have done? Certain things would have been different. Some things would certainly be better. Not clear for everything. Now, the related point, um, which, you know, goes, I mean, you know, I am a libertarianish guy uh, politically, so I tend to be skeptical of politics and government. And it raises the question: even if we 
we can assert that yes, there are historical injustices that still manifest themselves in current times, and that if we were God, King, Dictator, and could wave a wand to overcome them through certain policies, would we do so? But then there's the other question of, as a matter of practical politics, uh, what is going to work? And this gets to issues of classification, also to long-standing debates among progressive activists. Do we want targeted uh, social policies that specifically help African Americans or other groups, or do we want broad social democratic policies and help everybody with the argument on the second side that obviously it's going to be an easier sell to the population in general if it's be if it's benefiting everyone, even if it disproportionately benefits groups that are less uh, well-off. And also, I think, you know, with regard to classification in particular, there are inherent dangers in the government uh, setting aside certain groups saying, we, you know, based on this identity, you get this and you get that, because what we'd like to think that people will be enlightened and say, oh, we're only doing that to help make up for past things. It, it doesn't generally work that way. In-groups tend to support in-groups and out -group and dislike out-groups. And, you know, the one example, like, I'm not an expert on this either, but one thing I read once, which really disturbed me and made me wonder about how plausible it is to advocate for reparative policies uh, in the United States or anywhere, really, based on race or ethnicity in particular, is, is that an author asserted, and again, I'm not an expert to know if this is true, but when Conrad Adenauer uh, offered reparations based on property loss and went out to Holocaust survivors, this was widely opposed by the German public. Uh, and this isn't like 150 years later, like right after the Holocaust, when like literally the, the government had murdered 6 million people, and we're only giving like a very partial compensation for property damage. Even then, people are like, oh, why should we give money to them? So, I, so uh, that's just the way people work, and I'm not sure that, you know, politically speaking, it's plausible uh, in, the, in the long term to say, hey, uh, even if we identify these very specific harms that have done and continue, that the way to sell um, ameliorative policies is to say we're helping that specific group instead. We're helping fellow Americans, which will include this group maybe disproportionately, but it's because they're fellow Americans, not because they're members of the group. Make them part of the in-group rather than continue to be out-group. Yeah, so this makes it even more amazing that the, there were, was the reparations uh, package for the Japanese Americans who were interned in World War II, right? Um, that was a that was a big slog, but um, it you know was obviously you know not very significant individually to each individual person, but it did happen. Um, Jonathan, uh, so. Uh David has literally written an entire book about this, um, so I, I won't I, I won't add too too much um, uh, in, in this ballpark. But I, I think I would add simply that uh, for for reasons many of the kind that that that, that David gave, um, uh, and um, a, a potentially or, or certainly um, unjust situation. Um, however many um, years ago in the past, um, then has a variety of all, all kinds of things happen historically um, that uh, that sh uh, that shape the present environment, both as a matter of public policy and socioeconomics, um, that make um, it, make it be the case that like it's today. Um, it's possible that certain things wouldn't be wouldn't be so different. There's also um, this also gets into, of course, a very difficult 
um, empirical questions about uh, about causation, like why does why does this you know lamentable disparity of type X or Y uh, exist? Um, and in the meantime, um, this uh, you know this had like uh, uh, allocating benefits and burdens um, today on the basis of race, um, among other things, has the tendency to uh, distract attention from uh, targeting like the direct things today that are um, that that continue to be the issue, like uh, targeting um, a sort of aid on the basis of socioeconomic status, availability of social capital, um, whatever uh, whatever it is. Um, so, um, yeah, not 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 a lot to add beyond what's already been said. Joy, did you want to add anything there? Um, I do have a, I always have a couple of thoughts. Yeah, if we, yeah. Do we have time running? Yeah, we do. We have a, yeah, we have um, a couple more minutes. Yeah. I mean, I was going back, well, a couple of things. I tend to be a class and race person. Like I think both matter a lot. Um, you know, and, and so I guess I'll just say when we think back to, you know, what Justice Harlan said, um, uh, in Plessy or the civil rights cases or any of these dissents, um, you know, I mourn that moment because obviously we did not take that path. And so part of my um, thought process is that we really kind of lost some opportunities for for building a more egalitarian society that um, make the attempt to do it through colorblindness now much more difficult. Um, and again, like my, pa- my essay in some ways is mourning lost chances for a more egalitarian social policy which, you know, a lot of poor whites weren't voting in the South. I mean, part, you know, these figures we see on who was voting, it's, it's kind of um, mind boggling how, how little of the population was voting. Um, so I guess I see in some ways that as I wrote for this is about kind of the real class ramifications of disenfranchising so many people and blocking off those kinds of um, more general race neutral policies. Um, but I don't think that, I, and so, but for me, the fact that we didn't do it earlier has real important impacts in how I think the world has been shaped since then. Um, and so, uh, David, you said something about, you know, well, there's the people who are optimists about like race will wash out over time, will become more egalitarian, and the pessimists, which, you know, might be more like this, like maybe a, 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 a simplified version of CRT, you know, racial division is permanent in US society, hence we need um, ongoing kind of race based programs. But I think there's like a middle ground. I tend to be pretty optimistic. <laughs> about government policy, hence I'm not a libertarian. Um, and so I think there's room to think um, that one way through as an empirical matter is to really seek, um, a, you know, to create a more egalitarian foundation for our polity along multiple axes in the hope that we get to that place that you that you signaled in the future. And that's where, Jonathan, I think empirically, although I see your philosophical point about, you know, race should be irrelevant to our lives, um, I guess I feel like, you know, when Chief Justice Roberts says the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop, you know, discriminating on the basis of race. race. Um, I feel like beneath that is an empirical presupposition. I tend to think that there must be a claim that over the long haul, race, racial division, if left alone, will tend to wash out. But I guess I just don't think like empirically, like 
the data on social mobility, intergenerational um, shift in socioeconomic class, the way the social reality of race, like, I just don't tend to think that that'll happen. I, to me, it's an empirical point. I don't know. Maybe the maybe the kind of uh, countervailing philosophical value could be so strong for some that that empirical question that's hard to know. Um, Matt, I, I think one interesting thing that's going on right now is the uh, these um, sort of pilot studies and experiments around the country on guaranteed income, um, because um, you know they're really taking uh, it's sort of David's point. You know, they're taking this you know social socioeconomic fact and applying a broad you know. Uh, uh, remedy across the board, not based on race, just economic status entirely, but it has a disproportionate effect on certain racial groups. And I think that, you know, all of these programs are being studied quite rigorously um, by academics, you know, are people, you know, sitting at home watching TV or going to the casino parlors, or are they actually really doing ordinary things with the money that we all would do, you know, buy their kids shoes, um, pay the copay to go to the doctor, you know, whatever it is. And, um, and I think that that, um, because, you know, my whole position about some of this is that, uh, you know, money doesn't solve all the problems, but it does take care of quite a few of them. And that leveling that playing field at some level, or, or at least taking a lot of the you know significant pressure off of people's lives, might be a way out of this. But it's going to be a very long time before we know the answer to the effect of, of that kind of intervention, um, you know, on on the social mobility question, um, because that's a multi generational thing. Yeah, that if I can if I can jump in really yeah, quick. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I've been um, for a few years now, really stemming back to my time at the at the Labor Department. I've become a more vocal advocate of as a as a political conservative, the need for conservatives to engage more seriously with the concerns of the working class um, in particular. Um, and the 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 thing about targeting aid and certain kinds of income support or certain kinds of the child tax credit that that Renee had mentioned um, uh, are, are certainly are things that I can that I, I can and have uh, gotten behind. I, I do think that some kind of connection to work is important, um, uh, and I, I don't. I, I'm not convinced it should be unrestricted. But getting a little far field. The the thing that's relevant for this for this conversation is that we can indeed have a certain amount of call it kind of class targeted aid, um, and which which recognizes among other things that class or socioeconomic status is is mutable, is changeable. And indeed, these policy interventions are designed to change or ameliorate um, this, the situation of being having kind of low social capital or something like that. Um, those are those are mutable. Um, those attributes are mutable in a way that at least the objective component of race is not. Um, and when you do race and class, um, what you what you can end up in is the odd situation that like David has alluded to, um, where you have a lot of members of a mi of a minority race who are who are in upper classes who end up being the disproportionate beneficiaries of say elite university affirmative action. Um, that's that's at minimum strange and at maximum very far afield from the remedial rationales or the historical 
uh, sort of grounded rationale, Joy, that you've uh, that you've put forward. Just uh, if I could just elaborate, uh, just for this is a little bit far afield from my paper, but it's like it's really been bothering me. So I, I, it's opportunity to, to say it once again publicly. Airing of grievances. Uh, yes, it's a festivist airing of grievances. Um, when just just out of curiosity, when the SFFA litigation was going forward, and since it's at least tangentially related, uh, more than tangentially related to the work I was doing, I was just curious. Uh, to what extent I could easily find any evidence that the elite universities in question were uh, trying to increase the pool of qualified applicants who may have not had life opportunities but would be capable. I'm thinking, well, you know, Harvard's in Cambridge and Yale's in New Haven and Emory's in Atlanta and Washington's in St. Louis and Baltimore, uh, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore and so forth. They have wonderful opportunities to uh, with the help of their faculty and the massive resources they have, exper- you know, do various kinds of social experimentations with education, start their own charter schools, have after-school programs, have summer programs. And there is very, very little of that. I mean, precious, precious little. And it's kind of outrageous, right, that um, all these universities were portraying themselves as vanguards of social justice because they were, were taking, you know, 60 uh, kids of a certain group rather than 35, whatever it would have been. But they have all these kids living right there who could benefit from uh, you know from the sort of things that universities would be really good at doing uh, in theory at least and they don't seem to have done that and I, I found and I'm hoping regardless of how you feel about the SFA decisions I'm hoping among other things that this might light a fire under some of these folks to, to look into that yeah you know I mean I guess you know, there's, you know, the, the soft evidence and the hard evidence. I probably know far too much about the Harvard situation that is worth going into in this, in this venue. But the, um, you know, I think that, you know, in terms of, you know, like, what are the official programs? What are all the informal tools that we all use to kind of expand the reach of our programs? I think that, you know, some of the universities were doing a lot of those things. Um, and it's a question of, you know, you know, maybe not running a charter school or whatever it is, but doing some of those things. So I, I'm not, I, I, I definitely agree that they could all do more, but I'm not sure. You know, and are they really the best people? Because, you know, just because Harvard is good at ostensibly good and higher education doesn't make it really expert at yeah you know elementary and secondary i mean it doesn't have an education school but you know it's a different kind of thing than actually running a school for people of a different age group um so actually we're um i don't know if we have any questions from the audience um and if we do we should probably get to them thanks renee i've got a couple and i'll start with one for the whole group It says, David and Jonathan highlighted many of the practical difficulties of categorizing people by race. Will technological innovations make these issues easier to resolve or harder? Thinking specifically of technology for analyzing people's DNA or ancestry and artificial intelligence. Well, there has actually been one case so far right along these lines. Uh, There was a guy in Washington State who applied 
who was grew up as white. I actually have spoken to him. It turns out his father was a refugee from Nazi Germany. So here's a whole story. But anyway, he was white, and he found that he had some colleagues in the business world who were checking off Native American based on, at best, vague and sometimes fraudulent Native American ancestry. He sort of got mad. So he decided to do a DNA test, and the DNA test, at least allegedly, I haven't seen it, said that he was 5% of African descent and 4% Native American, maybe vice versa. He decided to check off those boxes. So he applied to be a minority business enterprise contractor, both under for federal and state purposes. The state of Washington approved him for state purposes, but a different examiner said, no, we want more evidence. He gave him the evidence. They said, no, you're not socially, culturally African-American, so for federal purposes, you, you can stay black for federal, for state purposes, but not for federal purposes. And he went to the Department of uh, Transportation, and they upheld uh, that ruling, and the Ninth Circuit then had a very interesting opportunity to talk about the relation, what it means to be uh, black or African American under the rules. And if you take the rules literally, if you believe the DNA test, anyone who is descended from one of the black races of Africa, he would have qualified. And they would have either had to endorse the plain meaning of the rule or explain that even though it says that, it's not what it really means, or say we don't believe your DNA test, something. Instead, they just punted and just said we're just going to defer. But my point is that this sort of thing is going to add an additional twist uh, to the difficulties of classification because we already have people who have, like Elizabeth Warren, who have vague family stories of ancestry. We have people who have legitimate, you know, I have one great-great-grandfather who was from Mexico, and these marginal cases are already problematic, and now we're going to also have people who, if their identity is challenged, are going to say, well, I tr you know, did my test with 23andMe, and 23andMe says that I'm whatever. And of course, I mean, I shouldn't say of course, but the difficulty is that the classifications themselves as defined tend to have relatively crude definitions that say, like, descent from one of the black races of Africa, of Spanish culture or origin. So they seem to be just, if you have descent, it's enough. But in practice, in the real world, uh, the fact that you have, a, you know, let's say an enslaved ancestor from Africa from 1780, who then married a, a white woman and became, you know, and the, their descent all became white, you're not really African American from like the kind of point of view of why we have these things to begin with, but there, but you know, th this is a uh, pending issue uh, that uh, someone's going to have to uh, address. The actually there are some cases along these lines, especially with Hispanic identity at the uh, state administrative level, and courts are basically and administrative agencies are basically split. Some say. Says ancestry, you have the ancestry or origin, you have the origin, you quit, you qualify, and others say you, like, this is actually a little bit offensive, but one case involving someone who was of Spanish origin, Spanish grandparents, it said, you don't look Hispanic, you don't speak Spanish, you don't have a Hispanic last name, you're therefore not subject to discrimination based on being Hispanic, therefore it wasn't meant for you as the, you don't look Hispanic, that like was Hispanics can look like anything. They're all they're a multiracial group. But anyway, the, so that is something that uh, I think will be coming up more in the future. But um, we don't really have a good resolution now. 
I mean, another issue with all of that is, you know, do motives matter, right? Um, you know, is it, you know, people just trying to game the system because they see an opportunity or is, in, you know, oh, well, I'll, you know, I'll sort of see if I can find something to take advantage of the opportunity or does it not matter? You right. Know, I mean, I, the Rachel DeLazel case is very interesting in that regard. If you remember yes. Rachel DeLazel, she was yes. a, a white, a woman of complete European ancestry. She had several adopted uh, black siblings and for whatever reason, she decided she wanted to adopt a black identity, but she really lived it. I mean, she wasn't right, just trying right. to take advantage of some program or not, but it became embarrassing when it turned out that she had portrayed herself as a black woman and sort of at least suggest that's not said she has African-American ancestry and she didn't and she was fired from her job and I think she's had some further misadventures uh, since then. But be that as it may, you know, if we believe race is a social construct uh, and she was living a life as an African-American and was doing it sincerely and not merely checking a box for a program, uh, can we say in some objective way that, this, that you're not? Does anyone else want to weigh in on that one? I've got one more I think we have time for. Why don't we go to that other question? This one's actually for you, Renee, if you'll take a question as the moderator. Oh, sure. It says, as an expert on administrative law, what do you think are the most underrated aspects of racial equity in modern administration? And what parts of these debates do you think are getting less attention than they should so far? Uh, that's a really interesting question. So I have a whole article that I've written about some of this. and But I, I do think that... Uh, you know, sort of going back to something David said about, you know, should these programs be kind of universal or should they just be, you know, sort of specifically targeted at particular groups? And I think if we think about, you know, programs like the Medicare program, for example, which is not targeted at any group, it's not even targeted on the basis of income, although some means-tested things are starting to creep their way into the Medicare program, but it's probably one of the most popular and publicly supported programs, you know, if you were to ask all Americans. Uh, and uh, and so I think that that's, a, you know, a, a significant, um, you know, a, you know, you know, something to look at as kind of a model. I think, um, but I do think that, you know, some of these other means-tested programs, and, you know, we can have a further debate about this, um, about, uh, you know, how, you know, how limited the eligibility has been, um, how, uh, you know, I, I think the Affordable Care Act has been, you know, a really great um, the the Medicaid expansion has been really great at expanding health insurance. I mean that that's not a, a project that's done by any means, but I think the idea there was is to really try to say that just being low income was enough, and you didn't have to have you know dependent children, you didn't have to be profoundly disabled, or you know not have the ability to work. That you know that maybe you know we should try to lift the floor. So that people could, um, you know, um, you know, have access to decent health care, just because they were merely poor. So I, I think I'm not sure I'm quite answering the thrust of that question, but I'm just trying to, you know, point out that there are things that, you know, we've we've been trying to tweak some of these programs, to, um, you know, to try to, you know, perhaps advance social mobility or at least, um, you know, change the way people live their lives. You know, right now. Well, great. That, that was great, Renee. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks to you and all of our speakers. Uh, I know we've gone a moment long, but that's not a bad thing. Does, does anybody have any sort of closing thoughts they'd like to, to add before we, uh, we wind this down? 
I see Joy shaking her head politely. No, John. Just glad to be here, Adam. This was great. Thank no, you. This was really great. Thank you. I really uh, liked having the opportunity to read the papers and to hear you explain them. Well, in that case, I would love to let that just be the final word. So thanks again to our moderator, our, our authors, uh, the audience, and all those who submitted questions. And also, again, thanks to the Georgetown Journal of Law and Public, Public Policy, which will be uh, publishing uh, these papers and the other papers. And speaking of that, tomorrow is the second installment in this webinar and podcast series. Uh, the authors uh, joining us tomorrow are Ming Chen, Jesse Merriam, and Bijal Shaw, and they'll be their conversation will be moderated by Kamel Foster. Just one last thing before we go, my guess is if you're watching this uh, live stream or listening to this podcast, you already know about the Gray Center's emails. If not, though, please do go to our website and sign up for our newsletter to learn about more conversations like this. Yeah, I've said a few times, this is all uh, in conjunction with a symposium at the Georgetown Journal of Law and Public Policy. Uh, the Gray Center has been involved with a lot of symposia in the last couple of years. We're very proud to partner with law journals on this, and so I just I can't help but advertise a couple of them. We'll soon have special symposia issues coming out uh, with the George Mason Law Review, which is publishing our symposium on the future of Chevron deference. Needless to say, it's something that's being debated a lot too. And then the Journal of Law Economics Policy has a symposium issue coming out on the future of financial regulation. One, lots of great papers by uh, Kate Judge, John Macy, John Cochran, our colleague here at Scalia Law, Todd Zawicki, uh, and many others. So please keep an eye out for that. And above all, please keep an eye out for tomorrow's webinar and the next podcast episode. With that, thanks again, everybody. We'll just call this a wrap. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter. Center.